Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Smart companies are heart-centered. Look at the data. Employees are leaving in droves to find companies where their leaders truly care about them. Heart-based leadership isn't a luxury. Today, it's a necessity. You will thoroughly enjoy today's podcast with Mark Crowley, author of Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century, a book that will be required reading for all new leaders, especially as we now lead anywhere. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And on the East Coast is our amazing co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco Mathis. Ginny, how are you doing today? I am great. Thanks, Mitch. Okay, great. Let's do another great podcast. On today's podcast, we have Mark Crowley, the author of the book, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Lead from the Heart is full of new data and insights that reflect the current world of work and employee engagement and is widely considered to be the first book to ever delve into the idea of heart-led leadership. Mark, how are you? I am great. And by the way, Jenny, you're on the East Coast. Mitch, you're on the West Coast. I'm like 12 miles away from you, Mitch. So that's where I am. So if I say I'm on the West Coast, but Mark literally is on the coast. So our first question we always start off with is, what has surprised you most over the last two years? It's actually an interesting question because, uh, you know, the, the truth is I wrote my book 11 years ago. And when I wrote it, I kind of anticipated that the world would finally catch up to what I was saying was happening and needed to happen with respect to leadership. But what I didn't anticipate was that there was going to be this massive resistance to it because the title of the book is Lead from the Heart and Heart just triggers all kinds of wild fantasies about, you know, we don't bring heart into leadership is the big picture. But I knew that there would be this moment, a tipping point in society when we'd all realize, wait a minute, like we can't keep leading the way we're leading and we absolutely need to bring heart into leadership. What I couldn't have imagined, Mitch, was that it was a two-year-long global pandemic that was going to shift consciousness in such a massive way. So I'm like one of the few people in the world, perversely, who are so grateful for a major pandemic because it finally made people realize that, like, I want to say I was right. That's not what I mean. We just can't keep going on the way we've been going and the way we're managing people. So that was the big surprise, that that was what it was going to take. I thought it was just People were just going to get fed up with work. And we saw that happen, of course, with 77 million people quitting their jobs in the last 22 months. But the predecessor, of course, was COVID. Yeah. So I've read the first 100 pages of your book and I keep reading it and I'm like, he's right. It's so interesting. One would think is, okay, this author wrote a book about lead from the heart and it's going to be all mushy. It's not mushy. It's data, 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 data. Now, you, you just said that we've shifted consciousness through the pandemic. Can you tell us more, like what consciousness do you see has shifted? 
So we're all of a similar generation. And I think that when we started in our careers, we kind of bought into the idea that work was work. And if you're badly treated by a manager or indifferently by an organization, that's just the way it is. Like work sucks in a lot of ways. <laughs> and yes, you need to go because of pay. We need to go because of pay. And we obviously want to ascend in our careers. And so we're going to work hard for a company. But we're willing to put up with a lot of really bad things that come with it. And, you know, an expectation of performance that's unreasonable. Managers who really don't care, they basically tell you that, like, if you can't get it done, I'm going to get somebody else to do it for you. So we're managing with fear. We're managing intimidation. And we kind of think, well, that's just work. Like, that's the normal thing. And so does it really need to be this shitty? Like, does it really need to be this bad? And, right. But then we had COVID happen. And so we were all deployed to our homes for the first time in our lives. You know, we're not going into an office. We're not having a commute. And we're also, can you remember at the beginning of it where we're all making these wonderful meals and we're kind of thinking this is going to be short-lived and let's kind of make fun with it. But it lasted for two years, really. And so in that time, we all had lots of opportunity to just think about is my ladder on the right wall? Like, is this where I want to be? Is this the work I want to do? Do I want to work with these people more specifically? Do I want to work for this company? Do I want to work for this boss of mine? And in many, many cases, and this is, you know, with the great resignation is not just an American phenomenon. Although the numbers are so overwhelming here that there's no reason to even talk anywhere else. It's like you just can't have millions and millions of people month in and month out quitting jobs and not have it be a signal that what they concluded was no, 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 no. Ladder on the wall? No. Right boss? No. Right organization? No. Right job? No. And so there was then this sort of subsequent, you started seeing in the media that people who quit their jobs are regretting it and they want to go back to their older employers. And that wasn't true at all. But some of them jumped just to like get out of the firing pan. Like, I just got to get out of this place and anything can be better. And then when they got there, if it wasn't better, then they're going to keep looking, but they're not going back to the first place because they already made the decision that was awful. So I think what's happened is that the first step was people having all this time to really reflect upon their lives. That's what changed consciousness. Consciousness then influenced people to say, there's got to be a better way for me. I can't live the life I'm living. And so I want to go somewhere else. Now, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Now organizations are going, well, what do we have to do to accommodate or support or respond? So I think kind of what the discussion we're having right now is that businesses can't afford to just keep losing people like this. And you can go out and hire somebody else, but the disruption is amazing. Like they don't know anybody in the company, so they're slow in getting things done. They don't know the job. They're working on a team where everybody's new. There's no continuity. You have gaps. I've read the other day that managers are afraid to even have conversations with their employees to say, hey, Mitch, you know, you can't just keep coming in every day late. They don't even want to have a basic conversation like that because if Mitch uh -huh. quits, it's just yet another, you know, loss and I got to go find another person. So it's kind of altering all of our behaviors. Yeah. And so I think, you know, smart companies are saying we have to evolve how we're leading. We have to change in a way that is going to make people look forward to coming into work or just doing work that is, as opposed to making 
work the way we've always made it, which was exploitive, transactional, and kind of not really good for our hearts and souls. Yes, it's almost amazing how we can transition now to say that smart companies are heart-centered, right? It's kind of like smart, which we would think is the brain, uh, are heart-centered. Because as you read through the book, you just have so many examples of companies that are working because they're heart-centered. So could you share with us, what is heart-centered leadership and why is it so important right now? And, and frankly, why is it working? So there's a lot of questions in there. The first thing I would say is that it's not just heart-centered. It's heart-balanced is really a better way of approaching it. My belief is, and science is backing me up on this, but I believe that we have two forms of intelligence. And the mind is the one that we've always deferred to in business. We've always wanted the smartest, you know, brainiest people for management roles. And we've basically said, keep the heart out of it. Leave your troubles at the door. We don't really want to know your story. We really don't care. And so people could feel that. And they feel that in the other form of intelligence. And so they go in and they're like, this is just like a soul-sucking place to come every right. day. So I'm saying you still have to have data and you still have to run the business. And that's often very mind-driven. But the difference is in terms of leadership. So if you're just managing a P&L, you don't have to have a heart. I mean, I think you would be stupid not to because it informs you in ways that you're missing out on, but you're not going to do any harm. Maybe you will if you think about laying off people and so forth, but you get the idea. But if you're managing people, my foundational idea is that we're not rational people at all. Like we don't make decisions primarily rationally based. We make them by feelings and emotions. So our feelings and emotions are driving 95% of our performance, our decisions, our behavior. And so if we just come at people from the head and say, hey, if we work really hard, our customer service scores will go from 3.2 to 3.21. Won't that be great? And people are yeah, like, I don't yeah. really care. It has no relevance to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. And it might mean something to you, but I have no buy-in. And so if we're truly driven by feelings and emotions, then we should be tending to how people are feeling. We should be creating environments that basically give people an opportunity to feel good about coming to work. And by feel good, I mean by experiencing positive emotions, because we know positive emotions right. basically puts people into optimal level of performance. An interesting thing I saw developing a couple of clients that I've met over the last two weeks, the managers and leaders are struggling themselves with the heart because they're accepting, okay, we need flexibility. I need to empathize. This is a very interesting phenomenon that is coming out of this one organization. So I let everyone know, you know, I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be in on Wednesdays. So, you know, you may want to come in on Wednesday and we can interact. And she said, no one's coming in. And she's hurt by that. <laughs> right. said, no one wants to come to my party. You know, and I just thought that was, wow, look how that has switched. Who's right. empathizing with me? Then to your point, that's <laughs> when you go to your head and heart, combine the balance and say, how can I give them the flexibility and yet also get what I need in terms of being with the folks I would like to be with in order to then move forward, the kinds of things we need to get done. And so we had a brainstorm, right? How do you do that? 
how do I have them come to the party and want to be there? And then we make something happen. And there is a way to put structure around flexibility. So as you're saying, you don't throw one out. You have to bring them together and brainstorm on those new ways. I love the language of structure around flexibility. I'm a massive believer in that. And so when you think about people working at home, the whole idea of coming into the office on days that they choose is patently, I'm just going to say it, stupid. Because if I go into the office and I want to see Mitch and Mitch is on Tuesdays and I'm on Mondays, well, I never the twain shall meet. And right. it is sort of an ego killer to think that they don't want to come in to see the CEO, <laughs> but, right? But it wouldn't be so hard for the CEO to say, hey, look, we're going to continue to work on a hybrid schedule. And in order for us to really connect and collaborate and really be a team, I feel we need to be together and we need to be together on Wednesdays. So I'm expecting you to be there on Wednesdays. There you go. No more option, right? Right. So I've just created structure around maybe three or four days at home. Two years ago, none of us were working at home. So I still think that's quite the luxury. I love that example. Yep. I agree. I'm hearing this with my clients as well as hey, I'm the CEO. Why wouldn't they want to come see me? So help me understand this from a heart-centered leadership approach. Hey guys, we need to come in on Wednesdays. We need to be together on Wednesdays. It sounds like a draconian measure. How could you share that in a way that is heart-based, Mark? I think that it's what you do when you bring people together. So we're spending so much time on our computers you know, we're doing this Zoom or we're doing what I've been doing since 6.30 this morning, which is responding to emails since I've been traveling and all that kind of stuff. And then you go into the office and we're just so wired where our predilection now is to just go into our offices, open up our laptops and start the whole thing all over again. And then we go home and somebody says, how was your day at work? And we're like, I could have done this at home. And so you have to look at it and say, well, what are we going to do differently to make that time worthwhile? So I believe that it needs to be heavily emphasized on meetings, on being together, on literally being together. So you have a team breakfast, you encourage people to get together for lunches, but you bring in people. One of the things that I think we're missing out on, like I had in my career, I worked in an organization. I started off in a bank, very beginning of my career. Everything in the bank was there, like all the departments and you know the CEO and all that. So I wasn't having meetings as CEO at 23 years old. But I'd see him, you know, I'd hear him talk and, and you see the CFO, you're picking up information. Well, none of us are getting any of that. So for working from home, you're not having those sort of, you know, those random kinds of things that you go, wow, I just got a cool insight from what I just learned and what I was seeing. So I believe CEOs would be smart to create that, to bring those people in too. What's going on with the company? And so if I go in and I know I'm going to be hearing from the CEO or I'm going to be hearing from the CFO or the chief marketing officer, or we're going to hear about what's going on in terms of our profitability or our marketing strategy, and I'm hearing that live, that's exciting. Like, I want to be there for that. But individual teams can do the very same thing. It's like, let's get together and let's just talk about what we're doing. One of the things I told you that I was just in Barcelona and the company, they're all over the world. 
and they're all CEOs. All the people that I was working with are CEOs of companies reporting to a bigger CEO. And the interesting thing is the CEO has been there for two and a half years, and none of the people on the team have been there for more than two years. And then these two years, what would we have? We had COVID. So all they know is each other through this. So he wanted me to come and speak. And I said, okay, let me just get the lay of the land. So I interviewed all these CEOs. And you know what I found out? I mean, loneliness, like they didn't know each other. They didn't know like anything about them. So at great risk, I said to the CEO, my client, I said, what I want you to do, I want to ask everyone to come in and do a 20 minute presentation and tell us who they are, how they grew up, where they live how they got to the career, what their business is, what their challenges are. And I'm telling you, it was one of the most moving experiences. And he agreed to it. So he understood it. He agreed to it. And the very first person right out of the gate just nailed it. It was incredible. And he told stories like you'd never know. The guy, like 24 years old, he adopted like eight kids and like all these crazy stories, right? But you now have this appreciation and empathy for this person. I think this is what we're missing. I have a question around this. And this conversation, I think, is one of the most important conversations we've had in a long time. Is, look, we all need to come together. Okay. All right. You know, either the CEO or the team, we all need to come together. And we need to get together just to be together. Well, why? Well, because, you know, people are alienated, lonely, separated, and really kind of like sad. We're not supposed to be talking about that stuff, are we? I mean, what I just shared was reality. And it's the reality that drives the reason for people to get together. Yet, I don't see, going back to structure, I don't see a lot of people structuring things around the reality of loneliness and separation and alienation. What would you say to that, Mark? I'd say we goes back to what we were talking about, about hiring the brainiest people for management roles. So when you're talking about loneliness, like, okay, so get to work. Like maybe that'll make you less lonely. That's not a very empathetic kind of point of view, but that's who we've hired for management roles traditionally. So this is a high hurdle for a lot of managers to start thinking about. Well, we want to bring people together because they're missing out on connection and missing out on connection is a really bad thing. I just had an interview with Jeff Cohen, who's a psychologist at Stanford, and he wrote this book called Belonging, just came out. And the harm that he has proved through his research that we do to ourselves by being alone or not being connected and not feeling a part of something is really profound. But I'll tell you something is really interesting. I believe that an experience of loneliness is a trigger to go out and be with people. I believe loneliness is experienced in the heart and that the heart tells us like something's wrong here. Like I'm not well, like I need to be with people, right? And so I'm predicting that I think it's already happened, but it's really happening. We're a lot more of people who with their heads said, I don't really want to go back to the office. I like not having a commute. I like not dressing up. I like having breakfast with my kids are also saying something's missing. Like I'm not the same person I was by not going in and being with people. And it was an interesting, I just read this statistic yesterday, the conference board found that 30% of American workers say they're less engaged today than they were six months ago. 
And so we haven't been highly engaged to begin with. So when you start with 30% more, so this is getting really, really bad. And so one of the conclusions was that not being around other people is creating a, you know, it's almost unconscious. It's almost, we don't realize, but there, our body is telling us, yes. go be with people and socialize. Yeah. Most people I think are going to have an openness for, you know, more time in the office just to be able to connect. Do you see CEOs and their leaders and their teams actually talking about belonging and alienation and separation and loneliness? Because I have not heard that conversation yet. Maybe you have. No, no, and no. All three words, no. Um, The reason is, Mitch, it's the same thing. So when my book came out originally, and I had the science already, you know, and I've got a lot more now in the new version, but the original version was pretty compelling. I really believe that CEOs, when they read this, were going to say, hey, we have to have a seat change. Like, this is the formula. This is the way we need to go. And instead, what they said was, I got to the top by managing the old way. So why would I want to change myself? Like, why would I think I needed to like embrace a whole new style of leading or, you know, philosophy of leading? And then interestingly, and I saw this with somebody that I used to work with. It's like, I don't know that I want my people managing this way. I want them to be under some level of fear and threat and intimidation because That's how you really get performance. So there's this feeling that if you start caring about people, they're going to get soft around the middle. They're going to exploit you and you're going to have, you know, you're not going to hit your numbers. So that's the reason I wrote the second book was just to explain, you know, we've got enough experience now to prove that you can care about people and still expect them to perform. And interestingly, Mitch, what I've discovered is the more you care about people, the greater performance you're going to get from people. That's the paradox. So it's going to be the next generation of CEOs that are coming in now who are going to go, we just can't keep doing what we're doing. Oh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the next generation coming in. So the same client, I had the higher level folks and I had the next level coming up. It was like night and day. Because the lower, still high up, but the next generation, they're in this pocket that we're talking about and struggling with it. How do I have structure with the flexibility? How do I show empathy and lead in such a way that we still have these standards that we need to coach one another on towards the future? The higher ups are struggling so much because this is not the way they define success. It's true. I agree with you. And part of the problem is that having spent most of my career in, you know, a dog-eat-dog financial services world, you know, to get to the senior levels, it's a brawl, you know, and you're not looking out for your peers, right? In fact, what I discovered was the higher I got, the more Machiavellian people Uh were. Right. It can happen. They think, oh, here's somebody who's smart and talented and is going to come up and try to take my job and I'm not going to let it happen. And that's fear based. And there's, you know, that scarcity thinking pervades senior teams. And so the very people that I've been trying to reach are the most resistant. You know, they're the ones that are like, I don't know about this. 
So it has to kind of come up from people or hearing it as they're growing in their careers, realizing it worked and saying, we have to have our whole organization this way. The good news is that 11 years has gone by and I'm now seeing, you know, there's plenty of signs that there's a lot of people that come to that conclusion that we just have to kind of reinvent it. And they are reaching out for resources, whether it's meditation or going to workshops where they're being hit with a lot of feedback. No, you're not coming off in an empathetic way. You're trying, but it is totally fake as hell. And they're working on it, right? Right. Almost, you know, an internal transformation because the mindset, as you just described, is so foreign. In the opposite direction. You just use the word mindset, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't come from the mind. You can't be empathetic from the mind. You have to come from here. And this is a struggle. I'm happy to hear people are making the attempt. Mm -hmm. But one thing I'll say (laughs) is that, you know, we have it all wrong in business. I was with a client a year ago and he goes, our word is empathy. We're going to be a more empathetic organization. And so, of course, I'm running this meeting. He's brought me in to do this. And he says this. And I'm like, do I say it? And I'm going to stop. It can't be empathy. It has to be compassion. It has to be, are you willing to do something about it? And it doesn't have to be, you know, somebody says, hey, I'm having marital difficulties and I just separated, you know, from my spouse. It doesn't right. have to be, well, come move in with me. That's not, what, <laughs> right? that's not what I'm talking about. It's just simply to express the empathy is I feel that that's not a good thing in your life. And I'm really sorry, Jenny. I'm really sorry to hear that. And, you know, if you ever need anybody to talk to, you know, I want you to know I'm here for you, but I'm sending really good thoughts to you and I really hope that things will work out for you. How long did that take? Like, you know, 15 seconds, but that's what makes the difference. Mark cares about me enough to say that to me. Like he's experiencing the pain that I'm going through and that matters to him. If I'm empathetic, it's like, well, I heard Jenny's going through a divorce. Like, okay. But that doesn't make Ginny feel any better and feelings are driving the behavior. So when you feel you work for somebody who didn't go, and by the way, I know you're going through a divorce, but can you get me on that report by Monday? So, you know, it's sandwiching them two together. It's just being able to say, I'm sorry, you're going through that and let it be. And that's where mind-driven managers trip. Because they go like, okay, I got to go back to, I really don't care about you. I want to ask a question. I want to make a statement. One of the companies I work with, they are actually hiring and promoting based on compassion. The company I'm working with, I see, you know, if someone meets the jerk factor and they're producing like crazy, they're out. And they're getting really, really good at this. Good. Because of it, they're attracting more people. You wrote the book 11 years ago. Uh, 11 years ago, Gen Zers were, I think, 10 years Not old. Not alive. <laughs> or five oh, years old. Yeah, yeah they're just kind of young. And, you know, we're seeing, we basically are seeing millennials and Gen Zs are quickly becoming the majority of management and leadership. What would you say to these Gen Z and millennials who are leaders? You know, I, I'm thinking they're closer to the message than a boomer or an ex-gen. What's your statement to them? Because I think they're more naturally attuned to heart and to purpose. What's your message to them through this book? And how do you talk to them differently than, let's say, a boomer generation? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that the boomer generation, many are continuing to work long into their career simply because we're living longer. 
But Gen Z and really the millennials, because they are going to be the next generation of CEOs and senior leaders, right? They're in their early 40s now moving into this is the time of their life. And I would say, you know, the way that I look at traditional leadership theory, and in other words, how we've always managed, it's like a baton. So we come in, graduate from college, we get into work, somebody gives us a management job and they hand us the baton and they say, here's how we've traditionally managed. And you carry the baton until you leave and you pass the baton on. And so my advice to Gen Z and the millennial generation is drop the baton and have the courage to lead the way you know People need to be led, want to be led, have the courage that you can still drive performance and you're going to drive great performance. That's the punchline. But if you have any intrepidation about breaking in with tradition and how we've always managed people, which is to pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, manage them with fear and intimidation and micromanagement and all those kinds of things, throw all that away. And say, we're going to be the generation. I'm going to be the generation. I'm going to be the person who is choosing to lead in a way that I know optimizes performance, optimizes human beings. That's really the message of the book. Because there's plenty of evidence that if they do it, that it's going to work for them phenomenally. And I love what you said, Mitch, about this company that you're working with. If they're weeding out people who lack empathy and compassion, and they're just driving numbers and ruining people's lives. And I call it weeding them out. Well, people are like, wait a minute, then management is sending a message that behavior is not acceptable. Like you need to be able to drive results and care about your people. And if you can't, then you don't belong here. And I say, you know, go back to the CEO of the company you're working with and tell them that you got a high five from your podcast guest, because that's the courage we're talking about. Like that's how you do it. And it can't be, you know, all we're doing is now hiring for compassion. You have to be able to have them both, right? Right. But we're right. talking about it because that's the component that's really critically missing today. So I love the expression, drop the baton. That is just great. It's good. And the second thing I think from this conversation, I would love for you to write the next book, Heart Based Accountability, because I think that is so hard to wrap our. I'm going to say wrap our brains around. I know I said that heart-based accountability would be really a next thing because we only learned accountability with a stick. Yeah, We haven't really learned right. accountability with honey and sweetness. So with that, it hurts me to end this podcast. I know. It can keep <laughs> on going. Great conversation. So we definitely want to have you back. In the meantime, how can we find you, Mark? And how can we get your book? Thank you for asking. I've totally enjoyed this. And we had technical difficulties, so we had to redo this. And I'm really glad we did. It became a totally different conversation, and I've really loved it. The best way to find me, the book, it's called Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. If you don't remember that, just Lead from the Heart. And it's at any bookstore. Amazon has it off 30% and get to you in a day. So I recommend that. And I'm markccrowley.com. Don't forget the middle C. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and would love to have all of your audience connect in with me. Yes. And thank you. My experience of you, Mark, is you're over, over, over generous. And it's been great meeting you and having these conversations. So thank you so much for your time and your heart. And thank you to our heartfelt listeners. 
If you love this episode, which if you are a living, breathing human being, <laughs> please share this episode with your friends, your family, and your colleagues. And we look forward to seeing you next time on our next episode of Team Anywhere. Anywhere.